Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Scott Witt. Scott is the president and general manager of Triad Clinical Trials, which he acquired through the ETA model. And uh, I'm just glad to have you here. A lot of the people we have on our show, we, we, we get a lot of advisors and people who teach this and or people who have done you know deal after deal after deal and like true acquisition entrepreneurs that that's what they're, they're going to do. I honestly, the reason I'm excited having you here today is I, I really think you align with a lot of our listeners. They were in the field. They decided they wanted to buy something and then they did it. And, and I, I've listened to uh, one of your other interviews. So I'm really excited to have you here, Scott. Thank you for being here today. I enjoy it. If I can help uh, inform and motivate other folks, um, I, I, I like that. I wish I had found somebody like me before I did this. I would still do it. I'd have just done it a lot more intelligently. That's cool. So let's, all right, let's just kind of get into this. So you were in the industry. Now, correct me if I, it's okay to correct me at any time during this, if I read sure. something wrong or have something wrong, but it, you were in the industry that you chose prior to acquiring this. Can you tell me the kind of the, how did you come about that? Okay, I'm going to buy, buy myself a company. How, how did you come through the, the, how did you come to the decision to make the switch from, you know, employee, consultant, worker to owner? Right. Um, it probably happened a couple of different times. Um, and when I finally made the decision, it was a combination of really understanding the motivations and my trajectory on the, you know, big five consulting, consulting path and what I wanted for my life and what my wife and I wanted for our family and our, and our kids. Um, and I think, you know, as I, um, you know, a big moment for me personally was when I entered Deloitte as a, as a partner, that's a very rare beast. Um, they're, they're very selective. They're very tough. They do their best to make you go away. And if you're too stupid to quit, then, then they started having a real conversation with you. Uh, life, life changing organization really loved it. Um, I was probably in over my head for a while, to be honest. Uh, but, um, you know, very, very gimlet eyed view of, of where I would be able to go in, in, in that world. And it was good, um, certainly more than I'd ever hoped coming out of grad school, but felt I could do better. Um, I also found that as you move up in any organization, Deloitte's not unique, the, uh, the senior politics get uh, far more intricate and far more deadly. Um, you know, you have to spend more time than I wanted to thinking about who you need to take out and, and trying to figure out who's trying to take you out. Um, and really, I love the client work. I love working with the teams. I love sales and business development. Um, and so at that point, uh, and, and, you know, as you move into that world, your, your compensation goes up noticeably. And uh, they, they gave us a, a, a couple of financial planning uh, seminars that, hey, don't buy the boat. Don't buy the lake house. Just figure out where you're going first. 
And mm-hmm. uh, so my wife and I sat down and had a conversation like, well, we're not going to buy a house. We're not going to upgrade. We certainly could have. Um, but we started to bank the difference in income and bank all the bonuses, knowing we were going to do something like this at some point. And it was probably four or five years later when this opportunity presented itself. So it was a combination of having made that decision, uh, ensuring I had resources to get started or have a serious negotiation, uh, and then finding the right opportunity. Now, what had you decide to buy versus build? A lot of people are just entrepreneurial. And I even catch myself sometimes going, I'll just go start landing some customers in this field and build something out. And you, I just, what's your thought process? I know why I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm 50 and, and it's, that, that's a lot of energy. It's, um, a, it's a young person's, young person's role. So I was never entirely against starting something, uh, but having worked in healthcare and for some really entrepreneurial organizations, I knew a lot of, you know, work colleagues and friends who went out on their own, who were at least as smart as I was, maybe even had a better work ethic and failed, just simply mm-hmm. failed. Um, in healthcare, uh, a lot of strengths. It's a big chunk of the economy. It's not going away. Once you're in, you're in. But the uptake for a new healthcare provider or a healthcare entity to take you on as an unproven, unknown entity is extremely low. You really need to have a five to seven year plan to hit, hit critical mass. Um, and I, you know, through the interview you mentioned and some of my other postings, I'm working with a number of folks who are thinking they're going to build a clinical trial site or buy a clinical trial site. And, you know, I, I just very transparent about what, what we did. And as I looked at starting another consulting entity or technology company, you know, all, all the successes make the news, but the 15 failures before that don't. Uh, and, uh, you know, once you've failed once or twice, you've depleted your uh, IRA and 401k use up your, your, your HELOC and your kids are hungry. And you know, that's lots of good people have ended up in very difficult circumstances for that. So we really focused in on acquiring something that existed, understanding that, you know, nobody sells a perfectly good fund to run highly profitable business for no reason. You know, you're, you're, you are acquiring somebody else's problem and somebody else's drama at some level. Uh, we were just very careful. I was very careful in vetting, the things that came on the market um, and at least tried to convince myself I could handle the problems and drama that, that came with it. They would not reveal or didn't see as, as, as problems. And I think we made a very good choice in, in, in doing that. I probably, I went down pretty deep dives on about five different companies. Um, some were services based some were technology based um, and, you know, profitability was good. Uh, as I was looking at them, I would have a just off almost as a toss off, start talking to the owner about, well, what's your retirement plan? What are you going to do after this? And uh, unless they had a really well-defined plan that involved them being in another part of the country, just not touching that, you know, uh, particularly in a small business, the brand is often so intertwined with the, the founder and the owners that, you know, you can't, and they can't sell that. And I've, we've looked at other acquisition targets since then, and I get down to it, and the owners put themselves all over the website. Sometimes it's a physician, doctor this, doctor that. It's like, that's fabulous, but now it's just me, and nobody's going to like me as much as they like you. Um, and so we, we've, we've shied away from those. And we may not do another acquisition. Who knows? But those were the things that um, we weighed on kind of, kind of big picture. At, at the next level, I knew from one of my roles at, at Quintel, a big uh, pharmaceutical research company, that the demand for clinical trials is not decreasing. Um, you know, I'm 
I turn away work now. I cannot sign another contract for six or seven months because I just don't have capacity. And that's another problem to solve. But, um, you know, once, once we were out there, once I was out there and engaged, you know, finding business is the, is the least difficult part of this, this, uh, the, this piece of the world we're in. I, I, I always know I can go get revenue. I get it. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the search. Cause you, you're, you said it didn't happen overnight and, you know, did, were you using like a broker? Were you visiting all the online, you know, just the typical online biz by sales? Well, what was your process to, to, to locate the, uh, the targets you were looking at? Yeah, mostly it was biz by sell. I think that's where we found this one. And then, you know, there's a couple of companies out there. You probably, the name's far better than I do, but they'll have listings on their website mm-hmm. and um, they're not on there or not as good or wh- whatever. So I would randomly, I'd like to tell you it was a systematic structured search. It was not. It was kind of episodic and, man, today really sucked. I'm going to go find my own thing right now. And I'd spend all night searching the boards and <clears throat> that particular drama would pass. And I, you know, spend another year, you know, slaving away for somebody else's bottom line. Um, but just getting on the, those bulletin boards and the, with the website, set up the notifications, um, have an NDA and a you know high level financial disclosure scan and ready to send off to a broker. Um, you know, just engage in them. And you know, brokers, you don't really need to have any education experience or capacity for honest work to become a broker. There's so many of them out there. <laughs> um, I, I was just talking about that yesterday on one of the shows. It's like a lot of states don't even require a license. I, I moved I'm in California now, but I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when we first got this, a friend of mine said, I'll just go buy a brokerage and then we'll have lots of leads. And I was like, <laughs> you can't just do that. And we did the research and sure enough, he could. And, and now he's, you know, he owns a brokerage and leads just don't come in like that. So I kept telling him, you know, nah, that's not how that works. But, uh, you know, you got to market still, you know, the same yeah. marketing, you know, the same marketing goes. So it's still not a bad decision for him. Don't get me wrong. But he bought it. You know, he bought a brokerage and he's like, you want to be a broker? I'll, I'll make a business card for you. He's like, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't want that. So did you own businesses before that? You come straight from consulting world where you were working for other people into owning your own. So it was pretty much just a dive off the cliff. Um, so in the you know Deloitte, you're a partner, you're an owner. Mostly, you know, you still report into a you know the the, the senior partner overlords uh, who do drive and dictate. Um, uh, policies and procedures, but at that level, you own revenue acquisition, you own hiring, you own career development for your teams. I mean, as so much you as you had, can. You were pretty rounded. And a lot of guys I, I talked to <laughs> getting into this space is acquisition through entrepreneurship, and they just got out of college, or they are still working for somewhere else, but they've never never owned it so much as a lemonade stand. And the one thing I kept telling them, and I think, I think you really... Uh, uh, address this in yours and what we're going to, I'm going to ask, <laughs> but is financials are more important than anything. If you don't have the experience to, you know, that like in doing turnarounds and growing businesses and, and doing startups, find something that's so financially strong, it's yours to mess up, right? It's up, it's running at great cash flow. It pays all the bills. It doesn't have any months where, you know, in the last three years you're analyzing, it doesn't look like they've pulled money out of the pocket to keep it going. You want something super strong because you got to have it, you got to have it running up and, and, and doing what it does while you're, where you're going through your learning curve. Were right. you really concerned about like how strong the financials were so that you could adjust to being the owner operator? 
I was, and I, I, I may have been overly conservative, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very confident in my ability to fix problems. That's what you do as a consultant, figure things out, build business relationships. You know, I've never not been able to go find a new client. So those, those are my skill sets. That's what I brought to this. Um, you know, what I didn't have, and we still struggle with a little bit, is kind of the, you know, the, the, the fine attunement of a professional CFO or a, a controller who manages cash flow better, tracks these things. Uh, but when we, when we looked at the business, we looked at the financials, the, remar the, the gross margins were ridiculously high. Like, like this is not believable. Um, so I asked for some more information. Really, what had happened as the, this business evolved to, to do clinical trials, you don't need a lot of infrastructure. You can rent a clinic, you can rent the equipment. Um, you don't really invest in, in computer systems because uh, the pharmaceutical companies turn on all the uh, systems you need to do data entry and patient management. They, sh they ship you all your lab kits and supplies. Um, you know, the, the upfront overhead can be extremely low. Uh, and until very recently, and still 80% of our business is done on paper. You come in for a clinical trial visit, we open up a eight inch binder that's had your last five visits, and your next five visits. We go to the 15 page chart and blood pressure and assessments. And the doctor comes in and talks to you and writes and signs. I mean, it's 1975 here most of the day. Um, so the woman that started it, you know, she, she did a really great job in, in building the brand and developing a patient database and having good pharmaceutical company relationships, but everything else was manual. You know, she did payroll by hand with a calculator and the, the, the booklet with the withholding tables in it, if you remember that. Let's, let's walk through this just a little bit. Like you're scrolling, and, and, and there's a reason I'm doing this because I'm, I'm curious. Um, you're scrolling through Biz by Cell. What caught your first eye? Like what, when you see in this particular deal, the one you own now, can you remember, can you go back and remember, was it the numbers? What, what caught your eye and made you want to investigate this one a little bit more? Yeah, so I think is a general process, not that I do this every time, but I, and I still look because we're, we're thinking we might buy something else in a, in a, related or, or to, who knows, or, uh, but I would sort of set the standard parameters for cash flow, mm -hmm. geography, um, and industry. And I kept my search pretty broad because I was open to other industries, mm -hmm. but healthcare, I know the best. So I went through and it was, the posting was clinical trial site for sale. And I'd been working in healthcare long enough and I've been working at Quintiles, which is a big uh, re research roll up. Um, I, and I had done some consulting at big practices around clinical trials. I go, oh, I know how this works. Um, I feel comfortable. I could figure it out. And I know that most pharmaceutical companies have a hard time finding enough sites to do the work the way they want it done. So I was very comfortable in the industry. Um, I would find it interesting. I mean, I, we, for what we spent, we probably could have opened up 15 Dunkin' Donuts. But <laughs> I'm not that interested in donuts. And if I am, it's not good for my health. So you know, you kind of weed those things out. Is it a good fit for my knowledge base? Is it something I care about? You know, I've, I've been in healthcare for many, many years, too many regime changes and regulatory reform, Obamacare. Um, I've worked with small HMOs and physicians and big insurance companies. And I care about healthcare. I mean, I really do, um, you know, when I was uh, just a young group rep with that, and I worked with a lot of small business owners who, you know, were great people running wonderful businesses, but completely hamstrung by the cost of healthcare. Uh, a lot of empathy for the average person stuck in a very complicated system. So I get excited about the work and the, and the research we do 
over and above the business aspect. So those things kind of came together. Um, and then looking at the financials, I was comfortable enough that I could let go of corporate America um, with savings and an SBA loan and a you know line of line of credit and some working for working capital and, and figure this out. And you know, within very broad parameters with a lot of lot of comfort margin. So you found it. You found it on on a site. You liked what you've seen. You started diving into it. Um, what was what was the link to the process? Was it a did you guys go quickly through it or did it take six or eight months to negotiate like average or what would you what would you say the process looked like to you from the day you made that first NDA sign in, start seeing some numbers until the day you like you know showed up at the front door with the keys? Right. Yeah. So so thinking back, it's a bit of a blur, but I, I want to say it was late May or early June of 2016, actually, when I saw the site. I um, had been in contact with the broker. He said eh, somehow I would miss this listing. And he already had three interested people come out to the clinic and meet and meet the, the, the owners and chat. And, uh, but they were not healthcare and they were, you know, people looking, he says a lot of people like you are looking to buy your job. You know, you, you want out of corporate America and you're going to buy something profitable. Um, and I, he brought me out and we met with the owner after hours. I think I made her really comfortable that I understood the industry that I really cared about research, you know, yeah, I need to feed my kids and get them through college and I want to have a nice car too but I care about this. I want to see a new Alzheimer's treatment or a new gout treatment come to market. Um, and she felt very comfortable. I think what put it over the edge is that, cause I had walked in the, the halls of big pharma and I negotiated with the big hairy, obnoxious egos that I think she struggled with, you know, as a single mother without a college degree, you know, dealing with guys like me on the side of the table. I think it was probably one of her big pain points in the world. Like that was not going to be an issue for me. Like you can bluff me all you like, I, we're going to, you're going to show your cards and we're going to do business or not. So I think all of those things combined made her, made it comfortable that we, we were the right uh, people to, to, to buy it. So at that point it was less about negotiation. It was about due diligence. Um, we used an SBA loan. Um, and uh, you know, the, the broker had a guy which, you know, helps cause they had pre-approved it. SBA mm-hmm. had done a, an initial scan of it. But it limited my ability to, to, to go look for um, additional financing or the financing options. Uh, I would say the biggest chunk of it was really getting the SBA paperwork right um, and getting our corporate structure right. The actual negotiation of the, um, of the, the pricing and the terms wasn't that hard. Um, I was pretty sure without trying to communicate it that it was going to be a long time before something this ideal for us was going to come along. So I wasn't going to lose this over a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000 on the, on the price. Um, and I think they sensed that. So I kind of put myself at a disadvantage. I didn't, once we were committed, I didn't really have a walk away point, uh, which if you ever want to just talk about negotiations in general, different podcasts, you know, that's, you, you need to be able to stand up and walk out and not look back. Um, and if you, if you're not willing to do that, you're, you're, you're not going to win the negotiation. You have to take what's on the table and that, and that, and that's where we were. So, um, yeah, I would have, the due diligence probably wasn't deep enough. Um, and I took a lot of things at face value. Uh, honestly, the, the, the biggest wrinkle we ran into was, um, uh, cash flow and accounts receivables. Um, in this business, we probably only invoice for about 20% of the revenue. 
and those are specific specific tax uh, tasks. Uh, much like any other healthcare entity that sees patients, you get paid per patient visit and what goes on in the visit. And so the patient comes in, we do all the visits, we enter all the data into the computer system. At some point in the next 30 days, the pharmaceutical company reviews all the data we put in there. They'll ask us questions, follow up, so you're back and forth for a week or two. And then you know, probably 45 days after the visit, they put it in their system for payment. And it's still, you know, 90 day payment cycles are still pretty common here, which can be stressful. Um, and you haven't really, and there was no financial system in place. So she, the woman actually had taken a ruler and a pencil and a piece of poster board and had hand drawn a spreadsheet for each study and we're marking off each visit. And you know, was hand ticking off visits on the remittance advice from the pharmaceutical company. She didn't really have a good handle on what receivables were. And um, they were much lower than they had, in, they had presented. And uh, I think to do over again, I would just do more time on due diligence and linking that receivables number, anything they've represented about cash collection and cash management and cash flow to some variable that gives you a little bit to, to fall back on. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say it was outright fraud, but it was, it was wildly misleading in a way that I did not expect. You already answered my, the question I was leading into from that is like, uh, as you are going through the process, you know, you liked it at the beginning. At any point, did it start to change and you start looking at this and going, okay, well, there's some information here I wish I'd have known. Uh, was that the, was that the accounts receivable the only got you or is there a lot more, like, what were the lessons learned? What would you do differently uh, on your next acquisition? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest lesson is, is just really a, a much more thorough and transparent financial due diligence. You know, what is the performance? Uh, you know, what happens? And I've been involved on the, on the healthcare side, lots of mergers and acquisitions. And a lot of stuff until you've, you've actually signed the paper and you can see all the financials, what, what happens implicitly or explicitly, explicitly is the sellers is juicing the business. You know, they're doing everything they can in the year to six months to private to transaction to drive down costs and build up revenues so that you're more, you know, you're multi, you know, you're, you're priced on a multiple of cash flow. The bigger the cash flow, you know, every dollar you get in, in in cash flow is worth three to four dollars on the on the on the price. So the incentive to cook the books is is high. Uh, the the bigger issue is is just I I call it cat, you know burn rate. You know you're consuming uh, the, the the your fundamental goodwill or your ability to deliver on contracts ahead of time to advance cash flow. So, you know, on, on a couple of contracts, she was overcommitted uh, and didn't really have the staff and equipment on board to, to, um, uh, to, to, to do the work to deliver to the, to the end of the contract. I uh, had really underinvested in a couple of things within the, in, in, in the clinic that we had to go back and fix. And so, I, again, I won't say it was outright fraud or intentional, but in, you know, you can, we, we I, I, I like to drive, drive a stick shift. And so a good moment is when you jam that thing down to the third, and you know, bury the tack in the red line. And, you know, that's a great moment. And that's when the car feels the best, but it takes its toll and you can't do that all the time. Right. But that's what, uh, that's what a, a good seller with probably the advice of the broker is actually doing. Um, you know, so it ends up with a lot of financial window dressing, just kind of say, well, we'll take that as a given and we'll, we'll allot 10% of the price just for this air ball, 
capital consumption is the term that um, you know, consultants will use for that kind of behavior. And then let's get down to what the real fundamentals of the business are and price it like that. Um, the SBA loan officer did not want us putting an earnout in there, which is a common way of dealing with that. He said, we end up in a lot of, he said, she said, court fights that don't go anywhere. So we're not going to, we're less likely to approve your loan if there's an earn out in it or any sort of owner financing, because that's the same thing. Right. Um, so that's, I would do that. And then you constantly need to gut check. Um, is, do I really want to do this? Am I, is this going to be my life? Uh, do I, am I that committed? Is my family that committed to this thing? Um, and if you have, and sometimes you're going to answer no. I mean, you're going to have panic attacks and it's going to be like, ah, I'm not doing that. This is, I must be insane. Um, uh, you know, and if you're not experiencing that at some point, you're not thinking hard enough, to be honest. Um, did, did you, you hit know, that point of what the hell have I done? Did you, did you have that spot, you know, anytime? Yeah. Yeah. Within the yeah, first yeah, year, yeah. probably solely. Several times, several times. We can talk about those. They were they were instructive and painful. I'll grab a tissue. We go over some of those. <laughs> but um, the uh, but I, I, I never wavered on my conviction that the the market was strong. Uh, you know, very confident in my ability to pick up a phone, get enough meetings and calls set up to find new business. Um, and that's where I and and if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Again, you know, you watch TV, it's a bunch of well-dressed skinny people with great haircuts having earnest meetings in their, in, in their, off, in their well-designed, architecturally significant offices. And that's it's probably 5% of my work life. You know, it's, a lot of it is finding new business and finding clients and overcoming objections and getting out there and negotiating contracts and that kind of stuff that is not glamorous and not usually done by, you know, good-looking people with nice haircuts. Um, you know, that you really have to, that business development piece and that cash collection has got to be a passionate part of your day, just like whatever your, your craft or your skill or whatever brought you to that business. I mean, I, I always want to bring in a, you know, we, we've done some gout studies with these revolutionary new infused proteins that have fundamentally cured gout for a lot of people. And it was a couple of young guys who had genetically predisposed to gout who couldn't work in their 30s. And they went through a study and they're still got free. And, you know, I've gotten emotional letters from all those guys. And like, oh. I love that. That is just, you know, so great. I got it. So now, and the, the point of the story here, we've, 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 we've looked at for business. You found something, you've acquired it. You found a few things in there. One of the things, the entrepreneur in me is not going to let this slide. You mentioned that your uh, sell cycle, like from the day you, close the business, you know, see a client to the day you put money in your bank would sound like it could be like 120, 130 days. It was that, what was the yep. sales cycle when you got it? Were you able to fix that at all? A little bit, uh, but I found a, a better way around it. Um, a lot of this, particularly when you're dealing with a big global pharmaceutical company who, you know, we've done some big Alzheimer's studies where we're mm -hmm. one of 600 sites across the globe. And when you're a fortune 50 CFO you're dealing with a $2 million clinic. I mean, we're not even on rounding error. So they say, well, the financials of this say we're going to pay you every 180 days. <clears throat> take it or leave it. And um, so you, you take it. But as I go through and work, work through my overhead numbers um, and how we structure payments and, and upfront costs, I build in a probably a 100-day collection cycle in. 
and then you know put in an additional two percent in overhead to cover the cost of capital so i can i can fund that and then suddenly i'm not stressing about cash i you know i've got enough money to to maintain a line of credit so i can keep the business operating until we get cash they always pay you know i've never well that's not true <laughs> almost always they pay mm-hmm. um, they've never you know once you've honestly done the work and they, they're happy and it's complete they're going to cut you a check for the full amount they're not going to hide they're not going to snowball you that's a beer. most doctors are always fighting with blue cross about this and that we don't we don't have that right um, and if we're even 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 when there's a contract in place if we find out it takes more effort to do a particular procedure or it's harder to find patients you know i've almost always been able to reopen up negotiations on the contract and get our costs covered um but it's you have to find creative ways around that, and the fact that I don't whine about cash collection cycles or send them nasty grams every couple of weeks when I'm waiting on a check makes us a little bit easier to do business with than other sites. And I won't tell you it's a you know it's a game changer, but it does make it easier for for us to uh, to maintain cordial relationships when financial when the financials get tight. It's so critical that a lot of entrepreneurs don't even like. You know, especially new entrepreneurs right out of school, they don't get that. If you've got a 120, 130, 180 day uh, cycle from the day you do your work to get to the day to get paid, you have to become an expert in cash flow management. Businesses, most businesses don't die. And I've done a lot of research on that. Most businesses don't die because of it was a bad idea, bad market fit. You know, a lot of those die off fast. Right, unless you've got some VC backing and stuff to hold you through a float to try to create a market fit, they die fast. But the companies have been around two or three years; they they die because of cash flow management more than anything else, right? right? And you're stepping into this new; it's it's yours now to have the foresight to look at that and go, okay, I'm going to have to put a system in place to manage this very carefully. Uh, I'll say kudos to you, Matt. I, that that. Um, you know, I have a knee-jerk reaction. If you told me I, I'm looking at something, you tell me it's a 180-day sell cycle from the day I do my work to the day I, I close. I want to know how much cash reserves the company has and how we're going to hold them there, right? Because right? that's my biggest concern is like, you know, you know, and I don't leave a lot of cash laying around. I'm, I'm a real estate investor by previous trade, so I've got a house buying addiction. So if there's a bunch of money laying around, like <laughs> I want to put it to work, so I'll, I'll, I'll go, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll buy another house with it or something. Yeah, I, I think we, we probably have a little, we're probably over... A little too much in cash reserve, uh, just and that's just part of my fundamental nature. It gives us a lot of flexibility in going after. Um, we, we develop a bit of a niche in in, in our world, and, and those clients are a little longer to develop, a little bit harder to work with, uh, but it pays off down the road if you've done it well. So we probably are setting out a bit too much cash day to day, but I'm reluctant to you know put that out to work if I can't get my hands on it if we need to cover a month or two until that that happens and uh, you almost have to for what you're doing there let's talk about uh you got my curiosity up i've heard gout i've heard alzheimer's and stuff what's the coolest thing you've ever uh, done a clinical trial on to help out with you know, alzheimer's sounds pretty cool a lot of people are impacted by that yeah so, <clears throat> so what i think the, the the gout was the most compelling one just from the the just the moment of it and you know I'm, this was you know I, I, until very recently very healthy guy working out all the time, good diet. I've had very few health issues just because of age that are coming up. But, uh, you know, one thing in general that 
the, the best thing that happened to me that was unexpected was the, the connection I developed with our patients. Um, didn't occur to me, didn't just it didn't cross my mind. But in the first year or so, I did some patient recruiting myself, calling people out of the database or somebody to respond to a Facebook ad and you're on the phone with, with people. And, you know, a big swath of America is not well educated. They don't have basic health nutrition information. They don't, they know they have diabetes or they have gout, they have heart failure, but they don't understand the underlying drivers of it. And if you're on Medicaid or you don't have health insurance and a lot of people who come into clinical trials don't, you know, you're, you're kind of a lost soul in a very complicated world. So, you know, getting to know these people and hearing their stories and um, gout in particular, because it's so painful, it's so debilitating. Um, and then on these, uh, it's a bit of a technical issue here, but um, a lot of new drugs are infused proteins and uh, they're very complex and your, your immune system doesn't like them sometimes. And you can go into anaphylaxis very quickly. Mm. So when we're doing gout studies, we have the patients here for six to 12 hours in the clinic. And, um, you know, we got in the habit of, you know, we, we do the dosing and most of the assessments in the morning, they're just hanging out, we're drawing blood and EKGs and that kind of stuff. But, you know, lunchtime, we'd have, we'd sit at the common table in the workroom with the patient and the staff and just everybody, I'll bring in lunch for everybody and just get to know everybody and um, hear their stories and all of that. Um, and then again, there were a couple of guys, they were farm workers from way out in the country in rural West, rural uh, North Carolina. And, you know, they were a little overweight and their diet was horrific, but and they probably burned 8,000 calories a day, but they both had gout and they couldn't work. I mean, they just weren't able to feed their, their kids. Um, and so being able to, you know, put them on the study drug and monitor them and, you know, and this was the first time they had really spent time with a physician to learn about gout. You know, they'd been hustled from one free clinic to another where they got what the best that those clinics could do. But, you know, when you come to my clinic, our clinic for a clinical trial, if the doctor wants to spend an hour with you talking about this stuff, please do it. We just build a pharmaceutical company for that. Um, you know, so that is you know, probably the, the best unexpected thing that, that happened is, is the, uh, you know, my, uh, my, uh, my, my connection, my emotional connection to our patients and how they're treated and what we can do for them. So I, I feel for you, if, you, if you're working with stuff that can put people in that situation, the amount of care you have to give them and watch over them, you're going to build a bond with them. Cause that, when that happens, yeah. like that all, like they wouldn't let me do the, uh, the allergy treatment anymore. Like that was too low of a dose. That was just too risky. If you're going yep. to go into, into shock like this, this is not for you. So, uh, luckily uh, something happened over the years and uh, you know, my allergies are nowhere near what That's they used true. to be. Yeah. We've but, had that happen several times. Um, our, one of our physicians is an ER doc. Uh, and we, um, the first time we got through it, it was fine, but we were unhappy. We were not through it. So he came in, rewrote our, 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 we call it severe adverse event, uh, mm -hmm. infusion reaction. So we built a crash cart. We had the fire department come out several different times, walk through the building. Um, we know down to the you know, 15 seconds of these, these three signs, these two drugs are injected. We get the oxygen. We call 911, and the second time it happened, uh, within four minutes, that patient was in a EMT's gurney, and within 12 minutes, they were in ER in the local hospital. Yeah, and, it's uh, critical. I mean, it moves so fast. You go from, hey, I got bumps on me to, <gasps> I can't breathe, you know. And right. uh, for me, my throat swelled shut. It's what they, uh, I, I, like, I just, they. that's why they run, they ran a tube down my throat and spray yeah, no, steroids into my lungs. And, yeah. yeah. 
No, my uh, our, our medical director, uh, Rich Montgomery, is a retired ER doc, and he's the calmest guy on the planet. Like he sees it. Yeah, I've seen a couple of young guys die, you know, peanut reaction, and we just they didn't get here in time. Uh, and, uh, at, yeah, well, that's not happening here. <laughs> at, at, at home, it sounds horrible, but at home, I hit myself with an EpiPen. I, I keep children's Benadryl on the liquid, and I'll down the damn thing because you know I'm like right now. I usually live remote. I don't know why. I'm, I'm living in the Redwood Forest of, of California. I think it'd take 25 minutes for, uh, for an ambulance to get here, at right. least. Right. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that, in general, the EpiPen hit only lasts 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. And if the underlying cause isn't resolved, you're going to go back into anaphylaxis. So if you ever hit that pen, I encourage you to get to the ER. Yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly what, you know. So, uh, anyway. Sorry, we did, we we went off on a tangent. <laughs> I, I have a personal relation to that, and it's not fun. And well, that was I think that was the one time I, I saw a really profound look of doubt on my wife's face about what where I had taken us. Because I had to call her <laughs> and said, "Hey, by the way, this patient we had today, you know, went into anaphylaxis and in the ER, and um, yeah, so." <laughs> It's like, but we uh, we came back. We talked to the the scientists developing the drugs, and to, our, our physician was great. He said, "Hey, this is this is a risk. You know, we when you're do, doing research or when you're on the cutting edge of medication and therapy, there is some risk, and that's all in the consent. And you know, but it's still it was a very discombobulating moment. From you a, probably would not have had in the donut shop, right? Uh, some people allergic to certain things in there. Oh, yeah. but the. Uh... Going back to the business side of it, how do you secure or protect yourself from something like that? Is there insurance that you have in place? Is there, uh, I mean, I know there's disclosures and all that other stuff. Sure. Um, waiver, you know, risk waivers and stuff people sign when they do clinical trials, but there's still some risk associated with, like, you know, I don't care what that guy signed. If one of those guys dies on your floor, his family's suing you. Right, right. Um, it works better than you would think. Um, you know, for, for a while, malpractice was the kind of a media darling, and there was a lot of sturm und drang. And, you know, there, it's, I'm not saying the system works perfectly, but in general, you know, kind of under FDA regulations and federal legislation, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are, are largely protected. We're certainly indemnified for any drug-related adverse event or damage, uh, what, even if it's indirect. Uh, we, we did have one patient who uh, was on, it was the uh, same gout study, but the drug is, we deliver it with some immunosuppressants and um, she got a UTI infection that got went severe and was hospitalized for that. We were indemnified against that. As long as we follow the protocol mm -hmm. uh, and we do everything to the letter of the protocol as it's written, um, and we're obsessive about that. We're just obsessive about not screwing up, which is why you can take two hours with the patient. You know, where I'm not rushing you through any visit because we cannot have a mistake. Um, we store the drug appropriately. We get the informed consent signed. You spend time talking to the physician um, before you're dosed. You know, and if you're a research study in a big academic medical center, you might talk to a nurse or an internist, but here you talk to the doctor about the risks. Um, and, uh, so our, our, there's really no, um, legal liability there as long as we've done everything right now, if we have not handled the drug properly, or if we've missed dosed or missed information, it comes a bit grayer. Uh, but I've got a blanket, uh, professional liability policy for clinical trials that just covers any licensed provider who does work for us for the, the required amounts. We've not. 
even when this guy went into anaphylaxis, you know, he called and, you know, we covered his deductible and coinsurance insurance uh, medical company, uh, pharmaceutical company reimbursed us for that. Um, you know, we sent him a stack of Chick-fil-A gift cards, you know, just to, you know, just, instead of worrying about this, go, go have some meat. You, know, you, you, you work around that stuff and it's, right. it's less of an issue We're, we feel very comfortable and, uh, you know, cause we don't do treatment outside of mm -hmm. clinical research, our, our malpractice premiums are actually quite low. Um, and again, we're just, we are emphatic and diligent when it comes to protocol adherence, documenting deviations. Um, I have to screen very carefully when I hire people into the clinic, you know, cause most nurses and a lot of medical assistants, they see 30 patients a day, their paperwork sloppy. It's just going to get done at the end of the day. It may be right. It may not be right. And in that environment, that's fine here. It's not. And You're I've had working a lot for of that you, paperwork, right? Oh gosh. Um, I've had to let a few really good people go because they just, it didn't, you know, on one hand, we've hired a couple of uh, grizzled old ICU nurses who, you know, if you were sitting in that gurney, that's who you want, making sure you don't die. But their stubbornness and, um, and, and approach to work just doesn't work for us. And that's just a, a quirk of the, uh, of, the, of the business. It's not a comment on any, any health providers capabilities. You know, it's culture too. Like, you know, you have to figure out what your environment, what works best for your environment and make sure you have the people that are willing to play that way. Let's, let's, we're running out of time. I just realized what time it is here. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about like, what, what's the future look like for you guys? Are you, are you, you going to grow through acquisition at some point or do aqua hire at least, you know, uh, maybe acquire other, uh, uh, trial clinical trial uh, companies to have to staff up or uh, what's your thought process on? on so it, it's well, it's a good question. We're, we're, my wife and I are having a philosophical discussion about this right now. Um, we're at a crossroads with our, our medical director who came with the business. Um, he's retired. Uh, he's fabulous. He's probably done 300 clinical trials. Um, he looks like he stepped off the set of a TV medical show. It's great demeanor. Um, you know, but he's retired. He wants to start traveling. And so we've got to find a new medical director. Um, we have a couple of opportunities to grow the business. We've looked at a couple of sites. Um, there's always two or three for sale somewhere in the, in the country, often in Los Angeles or Miami, uh, big concentration sometimes New York city. I'm reluctant to get myself into a situation where I've got to travel weekly again, just for quality of life. And, who wants to do that? That's a young Been person's there. game. Right, yeah. 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 So that, that kind of focuses it. We, um, I've got a, one of my sons is up at UNC Asheville in the mountains and there was a coffee shop for sale, the cool little downtown area. And I'm talking to the owners, trying to figure out, could this be another business? Um, I'm not serious about it, but if, if it worked out right, I would love, who would not love to own a coffee shop in a, in a college mountain town? I mean, it's that you can make a movie about that. Um, <laughs> I, there is a one thing we may end up doing. I think the, the two most logical things are to acquire adjacent land and build another building um, and find some investors. I got to find the right investors, though. I don't, um, you know, most VCs and private equity folks are just, even if they know healthcare, they don't know clinical trials. And this doesn't work the way you think it does. Um, right. And I'm just not, I, we've got, 
talking to some family offices uh, who do real estate-based lending and that type of stuff. So if somebody could give me two or $3 million and come back and not bother me for four or five years and then come ask me some questions at that point, that's the investor I want. I haven't found that one yet, but <laughs> that's, that's what that, that would take. Um, I'm in negotiations with two other academic medical centers to um, stand up a business development entity uh, take over their, they're not as good as I am at finding new clients and getting new, uh, new studies and new biotechs on, on board. And, and a lot of that comes, I think, just from my many years of knocking on doors and business development and understanding that no, not to be rude, no doesn't mean no, no means just not right now, or no means you haven't convinced me you're really ready to do this. Um, so that may be what we do rather than expanding. Because there's no, you know, the, the regulatory overhead's minimal. Um, it's work I really love. Uh, and I think I can build a good business around that. So it's either going to be an expansion of the current operation and on a different footprint, mm -hmm. um, or it's going to be the creation of a, you know, a services-based entity that, you know, that serves as a vendor to companies like ours. Um, and I'm well off connected. It would be easy to, to, to find new clients. That would be brilliant if you did the service-based one, because then you've got a foot in the door. You could almost groom them to be an acquisition of yours later, right? If you looked at it, you could bring on clients, help them improve their business processes, and then groom them into something that would fit really well into what you did. And right. such a hard shift when you when you made that final acquisition of the entire entity. Right. Um, just, I like that. I'd not thought about that, but that's great. But, all right. Uh what can our myself or the audience do for you? Uh, I, I heard a, a kind of an ask in there. If you know anybody out there that's uh, do, does real estate investing and and wants to be a, a pa very passive investor in a in a clinical trial, maybe that's yep, one sure. one thing. But what can we do? Is there anything out there that uh you know a resource, a person, or anything that my audience or myself can uh, to, to do to help you move your game forward? So. Um... Me personally, um, if, if there's any place you can post my website so I can build some backlinks, we're starting to build a um, uh, organic lead generation engine. Uh, you know, right now, if you um, uh, Google paid clinical trial within 10 miles of the clinic, we come up on top. Mm -hmm. But you know, we want to show up in a Google search for somebody who's researching Alzheimer's symptoms for their dad so that mm -hmm. they would consider clinical trials as an option in that. Um, so that's very tactical. And I'm happy to do the same. Uh, but more broadly, anybody who hears this, gets go sign up for a couple of clinical trial sites. Get your name in the database and be seriously considered and seriously consider entering a clinical trial, particularly if you're female or African-American or Hispanic, because those folks are, those demographics are poorly, badly underrepresented in, in clinical research, and it has an impact on our overall healthcare. Um, you know, most people, they don't think about it because, you know, it's scary. It's a new medication, very safe, very, um, not completely safe, obviously, but, you know, very controlled, very monitored. Um, you're going to get probably some of the best healthcare you've ever had. We spend hours with our patients. We need to know everything that's going on. Um, and, you know, particularly as we are doing Alzheimer's treatment now, we have two or three people a day in uh, who have mild cognitive impairment or moderate cognitive impairment, their life quality of life is declining rapidly or families are very concerned. And there's nothing to treat that now. There's a few things, Aerocept, that will manage symptoms. Uh, but we've picked three and I'm in negotiations with a fourth biotech that have interesting new compounds that have 
from a biological and science standpoint, the power to modify the course of that disease. And we need people in the clinical trial. I think uh, I so, was reading, reading something, that, and I'm going to butcher this. I know I am over in Australia or somewhere where they're using, um, uh, they're saying that one of these, I'm going to, like I said, I'm not a medical guy. It's either Alzheimer's or uh, dementia. It causes a calcification of certain spots in your uh, brain, the receptors, yep. and they're using electrical stimulus to break that up in a different way. And they're actually having huge results in that. So I love that there's, there's just a whole diversity of both medical, uh, you know, medications, uh, procedures and stuff like that. Do you guys do just the medical side of it? Or do you actually do procedural side stuff too? Um, we don't have a, a procedure room or a, you know, infection, the, the appropriate infectious field control to do that type of stuff. So we'll work with local doctors and local clinics. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and we're, we're looking at device uh, studies now where, you know, we've, we've got a new doc working with us. He's a well-known uh, urologist and there's a whole bunch of new devices out there for treating urinary incontinence and bladder control. And so we're starting, we're starting with, with that. Um, you know, we're, we're looking for a couple of things. Number one, drugs that are procedures or therapies that, that address an unmet need or things that do it better. You know, there's a, there's a bazillion different hypertensives on the market now, but we're working with a biotech company that is working on a, a, a once a year or a twice a year injection uh, to will control blood pressure. And, you know, the biggest issue with blood pressure is people just stop taking their meds, you know, compliance and adherence. And if we can do a shot once a year versus, you know, a, a beta blocker every day, far fewer people are going to die of heart attacks and strokes. So, um, you know, that's, that's the type of stuff we're looking for. I'm absolutely guilty of that when they put me on blood pressure, my blood pressure is barely high and, and there were other issues. And as soon as we've cleared out all the other issues after going through scan after scan, like there's nothing physically wrong with your heart. You have no blockages and everything like that the blood pressure medicine was making me feel ill. So I just, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll run with high blood pressure. And like, you know, we talked to the doc, and he says, there's no real risk 15 years from now, 10 years from now, probably, you know, you're going to wish yeah. you taking that all the time. And, well, that, uh, that, that plays into dementia, you know, vascular. So there's Alzheimer's, which is a, a chemical process and there's vascular dementia, which is, you know, the, the damage that high blood pressure, blood pressure does to your brain. That's, you know, that's the one that's, that's most addressable. So I'd encourage you to, Speak with your doctor and, and try. There's lots of new therapies out there. Um, I'll send you a link to this clinical trial. You may want to try it. Cool. But, uh, now, we're actually over our hour, but man, I could talk to you forever. There's just, there's just <laughs> you're in an interesting, you're not only did you choose something that will make you money and, and prove, prove, you know, to provide for you and your family and your and, and generations to come if you build it right. You've also, you've got something that's making a difference in the world. And, and, and yeah not everything does like I'm interested in coffee roasting companies and stuff like that. It makes a difference. And I guess it, it keeps some of these guys from murdering people. <laughs> some people are really grumpy <laughs> without their coffee, but uh, it not, in a, you know, that's in a joking sense. And in, in a real sense, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're working in an area that makes a huge difference in the quality of people's lives and the longevity of people's lives. And um, there, you know, again, kudos to that. Cause not, you know, not all of us can, can, can work in that space. But uh, I, I really like what you're up to. So I appreciate um, that. And we, we, I feel very lucky to. There, there are days, hard days, because it's a very complicated business. My wife thinks I was insane. And she thinks maybe the donut shops might have been a better call. But I, I, I've never doubted that. It, it does feel very good to be in this spot. Thank you. Yeah.
Well, uh, we're we're at and above the hour, and I didn't plan okay, uh, plan plan for you. Uh, I didn't pre prep you to tell you we could go too much over that, so I don't want to hold you here all day because we could talk for a lot longer. But uh, is there any like if is there anything we we missed? Like if like man, I wish that we would have talked about this so that the world would know. Uh, is there is, are we leaving anything out? I don't I don't think so. But you know, for anybody who's listening to this down the road, if you want to shoot me an email or just chat about your thoughts on becoming an entrepreneur, whether it's clinical trials or not, you know, I'm happy to, to share and chat and be, you know, an informal resource. I can't get seriously involved in a sort of time commitment way, but there's three or four people who found me through the other interviews where they'll call me and I'm looking at this deal. I was thinking about that and just, you know, how would you handle it? How would you react? And I, and I enjoy that. I would say the one thing that I miss, you know, not being a Deloitte or a Quintiles is kind of that, that peer group where you can just talk about these things in a non-intimidating, open forum way. So when, when people reach out to me through um, through things like this, it's, it's personal satisfaction. I like to help, but I, I enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's a part of my brain I don't use much anymore because I've, I've changed my role. And that's, that's really the only thing I miss from those days. I, I miss my uh, Delta Diamond double status when I have to fly because I got to sit in the back. But, you know, that's those are the only two things I really miss about the old life. <laughs> I used to work for uh, the government contracting world for a, a big Lockheed Martin, I'll just say it, and uh, traveled so much. I got a lot of the free flights and all that stuff with those guys. And uh, I don't miss the travel. As a matter of yeah, fact, I, all, you know, I like to travel now, but I like to go, I'm, you know, I might get off here and go drive over to the beach, right? <laughs> My idea right. of travel now is <laughs> I'm going somewhere I'm really going to enjoy being there. And right. uh, that's the reason it's worth the trip. Uh, right. but yeah, I do appreciate you being here today. Um, I, I, you know, again, um, thank you for being on the show. Uh, if you ever need Enjoy. anything, if you ever need anything, reach out to me, I, I'm willing to help. And the other one is, uh, we have a, um, a mergers and acquisitions kind of hangout, like a networking thing. So if you get in the acquisition mode, and you want to ask a group of people questions. A lot of people from my show join that we do it twice a month. So, uh, it's posted on LinkedIn and some other places. So if you get in okay, that mode where you're, you know, look. you know, and we talk about sourcing and all kinds of cool stuff. So if you if you get in that mode where you're looking to acquire again, uh, join in with our group and hang out with us a little bit and we'll help each other out. I appreciate that. I will put that on the list. All right. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you, guys. That's the Take show. Care. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, 
Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the itexchangenet.com slash marketplace, how to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.